name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. So today is uh, October 16th. Yesterday we had the feast of Saint Teresa of Avila, a great woman of great renown from Spain in the 16th century, fruit of the Counter-Reformation when the Church revived itself in front of the Protestant Revolution. And now, today, well, we have the first Canadian-born saint, Saint Marguerite de Uville. And uh, she was born a little bit later. She was born in the 18th century, so born in 1701 and died in 1770, so she was 70 years old when she died. And she was born in Varennes, so in Quebec, a place where they make boats, you can buy rowboats there. I don't know if they made them at that time, but uh, that's what it became famous for. And uh, she was uh, the eldest of six children, her father died very young, and uh, they lived in, I would say, significant poverty at that time. It was a, it was a hard life in the 18th century in Canada. I mean, obviously the weather and stuff, but uh, it wasn't easy. And uh, well, they lived in great poverty and education was tough. Many people didn't learn to read or write, but thanks to some uncle that helped her out, she managed to study in the, with the Ursulines in Montreal. And so she got a good education and she ended up in, um, in Montreal and she, married a fellow by the name of François de Uville in 1722, so she would have been uh, 21 years old. And, well, unfortunately, it wasn't a great marriage. He was off carousing a lot, uh, absent. Uh, he was involved in illegal liquor trading with the uh, natives. And, uh, well, you know, he just wasn't around for her. I mean, she had several children as well, and. Um, caused her great suffering. And um, when she was pregnant with her sixth child, he became seriously ill and she, well, cared for him until his death in, 19, in 1730. So she suffered a, a lot of that. It, life was not easy. There were no luxuries or amenities. It was tough, it was cold. But in that context, and I imagine there were also fairly few people. I mean, there was the church, and, but somehow in that rough context, she came to discover the tenderness, the warmth, and the beauty of God's love for her. Somehow she discovered the loving gaze of God upon her in that, in that atmosphere, in that rugged place. And it was as though she understood that loving gaze and it seemed to penetrate her through and through, through and through. It, it wasn't just a theoretical gaze. It wasn't just an idea. Oh yeah, God's providence. Yeah, I heard about that in my catechism class and it's, I heard that, 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 that it's true and blah, blah, blah. It, it, was, it was something that deeply affected her in the sense that it made her 
happy. It made her, it made her serene. And uh, she must have been really aware of the present moment, not thrown around or not agitated by worries or by stress or by anxiety or by concerns about her well-being. In that sense, her, her understanding of God's providence really anchored her in a spirit of hope. Right? We may know and may have heard about, about God's providence and we know about hope, but maybe it hasn't really sunk in. We just know about it. We would never deny it as such, but, but maybe we kind of deny it in, in our thoughts in the sense of how it really deeply affects us. Because you know, everybody has anxieties in their life, right? We, we're anxious. Uh, you know, yesterday I was on the 401, it was pouring rain, there were like uh, 24 lanes and people honking and, you know, uh, the signs telling you, slow traffic for another 24 kilometers, oh my God, you know, like, so some people handle that, well, no problem, I'm going to be another hour on the 401, right? And other people go, oh my God, I gotta, we're going to be late for this, I'm going to be late for that. See. So, you know, everybody gets anxiety. Some people get really frustrated by not being able to turn lanes, and uh, others um, just chill, right? So, um, so we all have one form of anxiety or another, and maybe we, we suffer that we worry that we will suffer this. You know, if you look at it more deeply, you know, what do I worry about? Or maybe I'm anxious or have anxiety because I maybe I fear that I will be somehow left alone in my life you know, that, the, that maybe somehow I will be without love or without somebody who truly loves me or maybe I'm sort of anxious that I'm going to have to endure a situation that I, I won't be able to endure that will be just too hard I'll, I'll fall I'll trip and the I don't know, I'll fall on my face and I'll have an ugly face you know? <laughs> because I'll have a scratch on my forehead and everybody's going to see it. It'll be a permanent mark there. And uh, you know, not that you think about these things, but uh, in the background of our mind and our thoughts, right? And um, we can end up kind of cushioning ourselves from any possible pain, any dangers, I kind of play it safe all the time and maybe inoculate ourselves from the virus of pain or discomfort or failure or rejection. You know, rejection is a thing a lot of people fear or maybe lack of recognition or that in some way people were to tell us, well, you're, you're a failure. You are a failure. Right? You have failed. Your GPA is minus two <laughs> when it's supposed to be at four, right? Or something like that, or at 3.5. I mean, that would be a good, you know, and you're at minus, and then, oh my God, nobody's going to accept me. And, and indeed, many have indeed experienced these things. There are people with minus two GPAs, right? I mean, uh, well, I don't know, that's probably pretty 
pretty hard to do, right? But the, and yet, despite the fact that people suffer setbacks, hardships, physical pain, ailments, they maintain a staunch sense of meaning in their life. They're like, they're like adventuresome. They, 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 they acquire this kind of resilience, a bounciness, and at the same time, an ability not to take themselves too seriously. They say, well, this is what God wants from me. God wants me to have a mark on my forehead. Okay, that's good. Like a mark because I fell. Okay. And it's something like that, in that environment, that, that uh, St. Marguerite Duville sort of learned. And uh, she provided for the education of her, her two sons. Actually, both of them later became priests. So she must have done something, right? And, uh, and the, there was, at one point, there was a blind woman that was kind of feeling her way around, that she saw she had mercy on her, and she welcomed her into her home. And, uh, and then, at one point, uh, well, of course, now, of course, she's alone, right? So the, there's these three ladies that were very poor, and uh, she welcomed them into her home, and they, they somehow started taking care of other poor people, and and it's almost as though it, it kind of happened naturally, bit by bit. They started like a kind of an institution to take care of the poor. Of you know, of, let's say of saints that in Canada at that time that took care of the poor or the widowed or people in bad situations or social situations, like there were a lot of them. Which means that the situation must have been pretty bad in Montreal or or Quebec or wherever. You know, like, like Marguerite Bourgeois, I mean, she lived in New France, right? And she died the year, or well, just the year before um, Marguerite Uville was born, right? So Marguerite Bourgeois was, was like a generation before, and uh, she educated young girls and the poor and the First Nations. And uh, again, she was in Montreal and she, she dressed as uh, the ladies of the time and uh, again, it was like a, it was like a social consciousness of the needs. Or Emilie Gamelin in Montreal, who this is later now in the nineteenth century, she also took care of people who were in dire straits, who couldn't eat, in poverty, especially women, right? And uh, she founded the Sisters of Providence. You know, it's a it's a beautiful phrase, the Sisters of Providence. And, and it's like, why did they need these ladies to found these things? Well, nobody was doing anything. Nobody was doing anything. There were all these poor people. I don't know if they were in the street or, or what, but... Uh, and she too had been married. Or Marianne Blondin, who... Uh, she's, I think she's blessed, but uh, she also educated poor kids, uh, to, especially to read and write. Like that, that, Those days it was a big deal if you could even read or write, and she realized that very few could do that, and so she founded the Daughters of St. Anne, and then she... She got into a fight with the local chaplain who refused to, I don't know, he was like a micromanager or something like that, and he wanted everybody to go to confession with him and demanded that, and he, was, he must have been a real, a real number, that guy, you know? But um, and then she ended up just in total obscurity, even though she had very good ideals, she had to live for the rest of her life um, in some place in obscurity. I don't remember where it was now, but, but the sisters still recognized her, and um, 
but she also, you know, had that drive to help the poor. And this is common in saints who don't see success, wealth, recognition as the supreme good. Saint Rosemary too. I mean, he too was maligned, and he was—he uh, suffered uh, plenty of detractors, right? and uh, a lot of people criticized him. But he also too—he went, he, like it's not as though he didn't care, but he like it was painful to be so maligned, you know. And he had a character, he had a personality, he was extremely enthusiastic, and people misrepresented that in different ways. He too spent a lot of time with the poor that he, you know, he was touched by seeing all this, right? And so all these saints, I think something that we have to come to grips with better is to understand how divine providence works in our life. And this, in, in the saints in Canada, many of them came from poor environments or, or the social conditions were very, let's say, fragile and they felt the need to help others in their, in their poverty-stricken milieu. But what sustained them always was a sense of divine providence, right? Like that God has a plan for me, and He loves me, and they, they had a deep sense of what, what God was looking upon when He looks upon me. What kind of gaze does God have on me? Like if you were to picture God now, or Jesus looking on you now, he's okay. Like he's looking at you right now from the tabernacle, and he's thinking about what you did today. And maybe you had a problem and something you failed and something came late or did some you messed up somehow. Now is he gonna look at you and going, oh my God, there she goes again, oh. You know, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Or is he going to look at you with love? Of course, he allows certain events to take place. You, you could fall, you could have a pain, you could wake up with a headache, you could have a lot of work, you could have a dispute with somebody. See, this is what happened to, to Marianne Duville. There's a, there's a famous painting in the Cathedral of Montreal. So if you go into the cathedral and you go... You're entering, you go left, on the left side, as I recall. I think it's, I think it's on the left side. One of the first paintings in the left um, aisle was a big painting of uh, Marguerite Duville, And she's there, it's from an incident in 1765, where she's there with all her religious nuns. And she's standing outside in the bitter cold. I think it was in February 1765. And she's got her hands out like that, and they're all kneeling. And in front of them is the convent that she helped build, and it's completely engulfed in flames. Right? All, all these flames are coming out of all the windows and stuff. And because some, one of the nuns had left a fire going, I don't know what she did, but she seriously messed up. And the whole place went up in flames, right? And so the scene represents the moment in which Marguerite Yuville uh, says to them, okay, it's freezing cold, there's snow, our home is blazing, I want everybody to kneel down and sing the Te Deum. They said, what? 
the Tadeum, the Tadeum is a single praise of Thanksgiving, you know, it's like what you sing when there's a major feast, when, when everybody's super pumped with, uh, you know, a great uh, feast day and we're going to have a great meal. She says, no, no, we're going to kneel now because despite the fact that this was like a disaster from a human point of view, uh, she said, no, no, God has a plan for us and so we have to accept this. It's terrible. Of course, our house is being burnt and uh, we have no place to stay we're freezing cold and but we will rebuild you know that took resilience that took guts that took a spirit of adventure uh, but above all it took a sense of abandonment in god's plans god's providence if we think that that god has failed because our house burned down then we don't really believe in his providence because god can draw good even even out of something, well, as, as well, uh, apparently terrible as your house burning down. That's why she was canonized in, in 1990 by Pope John Paul II. But above all, we too have to have this sense of, uh, of your providence, Lord. And in today's gospel, we are told that when the crowds came, many thousands gathered so that it says, this is an interesting line, it says, they were trampling on one another. And Jesus began to speak first to the disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which is hypocrisy. And he, and he goes off against the, the, the Pharisees about hypocrisy. But I like this phrase, they were trampling on one another. So you picture the scene, there's Jesus, and all these people are like, you know, they just kind of get there and, and they're, you know, you know, giving each other a elbow. And uh, it, why did they do that? I mean, it's the attraction of Jesus. He was like, he was like a magnet. And they were drawn to his presence. But why were they so drawn to his presence? Why were they so attracted to his words and the things he said by his wisdom? I, I don't think it was like when you see crowds in a, in a rock concert where people want to see the rock, the rock star. When people crowd around the stage in a rock concert, they want to see the star, they want to see the famous you know, singer. But in this case, I don't think it was so much that they wanted to see Jesus as, as that they wanted to be within the very purview of his own gaze. They wanted to be seen by Jesus. They wanted to be seen. If they got closer, then he would see them, and it's as though he would, he would take care of them somehow. And, well, we have to think that, you know, I am in your presence right now, and you do see me, Lord. And uh, despite my sins, in your mercy, you love me. After all, we began this prayer. We said that you see me, that you hear me. We didn't say that I hear you, that I see you. We said that you hear me, that you see me. And people were desiring to be seen. That's why they trampled on one another. I mean, it was excitement, but uh, they wanted to fall within the radius 
within the perimeter of your vision, Lord. And they wanted to receive the power of your gaze. Imagine if you could be seen by Jesus like that. Well, it's important that we develop that, or let's say that we acknowledge that, that no, Jesus is always looking at us. And it's, always, it's, it's not, like if you imagine Jesus' look, it's not a look of disdain, it's not a look of, uh, it's not a grimace, it's not a pained look. Do I imagine that God looks at me kind of in his perfect universe, uh, where everything is automated and he has uh, everything is perfect for him and he, he kind of like looks at it looks at us from his transcendent couch well Margaret Uville certainly didn't think that I mean she lived in a very different time but I think in some ways she understood his loving gaze a gaze that was providential and it tells us really everything's going to be okay Everything's going to go well. It's okay. And if I really see things as God sees them, wouldn't that give me more peace? If I could just see things as God sees them. And uh, because we would be able to see things as His purposes are. I heard of a conference... uh, that a guy went to and uh, it was a guy who was a marriage counselor and he was uh, he had been counseling people in their marriages and he was a very good predictor of divorce he could predict divorce and he and he had been um, himself married for a long time but he would receive a couple and he said he would watch them interact and he said within 94% accuracy he could predict whether they would be divorced within three years just by watching them just by you know watching them interact and he said that the number one predictor of a couple that would divorce within three years the number one predictor was eye rolling eye rolling right like the roll your you know like you you know, because, I mean, there were other signs, and they were not anger, but forms of contempt. And the eye roll does exactly that. It transmits the sense of the absolute worthlessness of another and of his opinions or her opinions. Other things like derisiveness, sarcasm, dismissal where we sneer at somebody because those are ways of looking at something where we dismiss we don't consider them important we think they're stupid we think they're idiots and that is expressed through those forms especially apparently eye rolling is like the number one factor because when you show the whites of your eyes you're saying you know what I don't even want to look at you because you're so dumb. So they go, like that. Now, we can be wrong, we can sin, and we can have great defects, and they accompany us all our lives. We have big defects, we have sins, but Jesus will never roll his eyes at us. He will never go, oh, there she goes. 
she's, oh my God, she's, oh. He will never be dismissive of us. He will never be sarcastic of us. And perhaps people who have been trampling on one another to fall within the purview of your gaze, well, I would say maybe they had experienced some form of judgmental looks or dismissive looks or sarcastic looks, maybe precisely of the, of the Pharisees, right? who were probably experts at that. And now they wanted to see the intense gaze of love, of providential love. They wanted more of that. And it didn't mean that everything's going to be fine and you're not going to have any problems, you're not going to suffer, everything's going to be now. No, no. You can endure anything if you know that you are loved. Anything. Everything will be fine. So let's, let's try to rediscover this in our own mind. God made you for greatness. And he made your mind so that you can achieve that greatness. He made your mind, that is your thoughts. And so many people are living their lives without realizing that they are missing so much. And we can discover truths about the way God created your mind, the way God created you, And if we can place our mind in an optimal functioning mode and experience how God sees us, that will give us a lot of peace. Many people walk around asleep in their lives. They, you, know, you can wake up, you can be freed from the, this trap that our mind comes in. Jesus is really our hope because he is the only one who truly loves us unconditionally. And, uh, and when we enter into this realm, even if our building burns down, like Marguerite Duville's building, well, all will be well. And they, they rebuilt it, and now it's a big building. It's a huge real estate there in Montreal, and it's worth a lot of money. So she could have said, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm abandoning this project. But she remembered God's love. Our Blessed Mother will intercede for us, because she understood this too, of course. The loving gaze of her son, she's the mother of God, which she experiences in heaven today. She will intercede for us so that we experience God's providence as well. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.